0: This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. No algorithm has ever jammed out to its favorite song, dreamed of starting a band, or watched its favorite movie a hundred times, or even watched a single movie for that matter, which is why an algorithm has no business picking the films that you watch. Mubi is a curated online cinema streaming exceptional films from around the world. Each day, they introduce a new hand-picked gem, and you have one month to watch it. Whether it's a forgotten classic, a festival darling, or a groundbreaking masterpiece, every single film is hand selected by experts. Try Movie for free. That's M U B I dot com slash words, and you will love this thing. This has changed my life in the most positive way. You get amazing cinema, so, such good stuff that, like, I love movies, and it shows me stuff that I'm like, yo, I've never even heard of this. And I watch it, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. So please, 30 days for free. Mubi.com, mub slash words, 30 days for free. All right, now on to the show. Hello, 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 everybody. I'm Ray Harkins, and you are listening to 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I am so sorry that we are two days later than what I normally like to release episodes, and that's on Wednesdays. I apologize profusely. Life has just been... So busy that uh, I just haven't been able to record these beautiful intros and outros and, you know, edit the show and all that stuff. So I apologize. But um, here we are. And no more apologies. Now we're just here's the show. And the show today is an incredible discussion with a friend of mine, Ryan Downey. He uh, is a man of many talents. He is a journalist and does a lot of stuff for alternative press and uh, a ton of pop culture stuff for, you know, a wide variety of sites He also is a manager under the moniker Superhero Management. He manages uh, Dillinger Escape Plan, Demon Hunter, um, and he managed back in the early 2000s bands like Throwdown, Bleeding Through, and he also is the vocalist for the mid to late 90s, early 2000s band called Burn It Down. And, uh, yeah, he's, he's just a friend. He's been a guy that's been in my life for quite some time and, uh, I've always respected the work that he's done. So that's why he's on the show. He's what I like to call a lifer. And he's also a podcaster as well. Does a, a variety of shows, one called uh, no prize from God. And then, uh, there's another one about Metallica called speak and destroy. If I am not mistaken. Uh, I haven't listened to that yet because, uh, I am not a huge Metallica head. Uh, but for those of you that are interested in that, you can find his stuff on any podcast catcher app that you use. Um, but let, more on him in a moment. Let's uh, get some business pleasantries out of the way. Um, noecho.net, our good partners, our web partners, they promote the show. And I want to tell you that you should visit their website uh, because they have a bunch of cool content that is all related to the punk and hardcore side of things, whether it's super in-depth interviews or whether it is, you know, highlight of photographers or record collectors. It's just fun stuff. So dive in there. Enjoy the recent content that they have been posting and uh yeah i've also uh been able to go to some shows recently and was able to uh, see john carpenter last night who is the uh you know legendary movie director and he also is a crafter of his soundtracks you know from halloween to assault on Precinct 13 he's just done so much cool stuff and um yeah it was a, it was a really cool experience it's it's interesting though like when you're watching someone like him You know, get up there with the band and perform. And, you know, we as in people who are watching independent bands play on a, you know, semi regular basis. It's interesting because sometimes you feel like people are, you know, kind of going through the motions and not in a bad way. Just like, you know, watching John Carpenter perform. It's very much like, you know, he says, I imagine the same stuff in between every single song. And you know, sometimes when you watch bands on tour, you feel like they probably say the same stuff time and time again. And, uh, I don't know, I it doesn't bother me per se, but I'm just like, man, I want to feel like I'm living in a moment with you. And, uh, I don't know. Does that bother any of you that are listening? You can email me 100 words podcast at com. but just that sort of, you know, spontaneity and like engaging the audience, like you never know what's going to happen. And I'm not saying that it's like, the uh, you know, performers on stage need to do like crowd work or something like that. But you know, you want to feel like you're in these moments that aren't, uh, I guess, rehearsed, you know? Um, but yeah, that's no slight against John Carpenter because his show was incredible, but you know, I could tell that it was like, all right, his, uh, what he says about every song that he, before every song he's going to play is a uh, very much a, uh, a thing that he has done before. And I apologize. The, uh, the gardeners are here. <laughs> so if you hear something in the background, that's what you hear. But, um, yeah what else do i got for you well no n- nothing else i just want to dive right into it like i said ryan downey man of many talents and uh, i was very happy to have this discussion with him because we tried a podcast a long time ago and uh, i got about an hour into it and frankly we had gotten like nowhere in his life and so i was like uh okay we'll we'll wrap this up and we did and then i sat on it for a while and um yeah never released it but uh yeah now we 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 focused and we nailed it this time so that's that and i will talk to you after the show's over And it was, uh, I think the first time that you and I ever actually officially met, even though we traveled in the same circles, was a, a random dinner at Real Food Daily. And uh, this, the reason it sticks out in my head is because it was just like a group, I don't know, it was like maybe 10 or 15 of us. And I don't even remember. I think it was for someone's birthday. I can't recall. But uh, it was one of those things where I was excited to meet you because I had already been a fan of, you know, Burn It Down, and I had loved what you did with superhero magazine even though you put out five or six issues of superhero i can't recall
1: oh man i don't remember either but some that that sounds about right yeah Somewhere in that i
0: just lo- i just i anyways i just really you know liked what you put out to the world and i was like oh dude that's that's ryan i knew that he moved out here but i had not met him yet and the thing that I, that always attracted me to you from that perspective was the fact that you know you were you had your hands in a lot of different things like you you were n- never a person that just did you know one thing whether it was a a profession or an artistic expression um i presume that's kind of always been the case for you um yeah
1: you know and and, it, and what's interesting is that You know, depending on the conversation, there's a lot of different ways that people approach it. Uh, You know, sometimes people will say like, oh, you know, you must be spread so thin. You're doing all these different things, which is, of course, true to a large degree. But on the flip side, and this is something that I've come to realize more in recent years, it all overlaps. You know, there are all things that, that dovetail together, you know, whether that was as far back as, you know, being in the studio with Machine Head doing a profile for Circus Magazine and handing Rob Flynn a Burn It Down CD. And then, you know, fast forward to 2017 and I'm interviewing Rob Flynn for my Metallica podcast. Um, And and at various points in between, you know, uh, working as a manager for Throwdown and having Throwdown on tour with Machine Head and having Bleeding Through on tour with Machine Head. And that's just one example that comes to mind of those may all seem like wildly different things that i was involved in and yet here they all sort of coalesce into something very recent of my own sort of creative endeavors you know with the speak and destroy podcast for example so you know i I always saw that there were overlaps and commonalities in the different things that i was doing but yeah going back to you know when i was in high school i was singing in a hardcore band doing is doing a fanzine um putting on shows you know, I always saw it as how can I participate? You know, how can I contribute to the things I love? And, you know, I would say that's been the one consistent thing that that persists in my personal and professional life now.
0: Yeah. No, that makes sense, because I, I do think that people I mean, especially, you know, coming from the the scene that we have where uh, I, I mean, it takes a certain person to. Um, to be able to do multiple things at the same time you know whether it's either attention span or just the fact that you know the the jack of all trades master of none sort of scenario but yes but at the same time it's like you that that creative energy where you're just like okay i want to do this and like this looks cool so i want to try this and I, i think that just kind of like you said it bleeds out into your adult life but then as long as you're creatively thinking about it they all can benefit one another in some weird ways like you know you just mentioned that that through line of like oh yeah like i can reach out to this person who i've known for 15 years and of course they'll agree to do a podcast with me as opposed to who is this person why would i do something with them
1: yes exactly and and there's and sometimes i mean like you you mentioned us meeting um at real food daily at some point and yeah i mean <laughs> You're a great example of somebody who I've always respected and always enjoyed running into you and talking to you. And we've had a, a multiple, I mean, so many different reasons that we've connected over the years, you know, that I couldn't even pinpoint, you know, if someone were to say, how do you know Ray Harkins? I, I would just say,
0: I don't know. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <You> know? <laughs> yeah, we, we just, we just, you, it, I agree. It, you just kind of like usurp into this this uh, you know uh, this stew of like oh yeah like i've just i've known these people forever and like that's just yeah. that's just who they are and 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 i found that you know when you find
1: good people to interact with people that you trust or and who are authentic and of good character and are doing cool things such as yourself i think that you continue to endeavor to find ways to interact with each other you know, and when you're a workaholic and you're trying to do a million different things, part of the enjoyment that you can get from that is figuring out excuses to uh, interact with people that you
0: like. Yeah. You know, it, it is true to where – I mean there there's very – the entertainment industry has the ability for you to be able to create – relationships uh that are beneficial not only from a professional standpoint but then also i actually like working with these people you know and like i I think that's you know i mean
1: and and that took me a while to learn because there's definitely been different neighborhoods that i've traveled in so to speak in the entertainment business we're dealing with a lot of people that you don't enjoy dealing with and you know some of the best advice that i ever got was actually from Vaughn Lewis, uh, one of the guys who manages killswitch engage and you know somebody who i've always respected and looked up to. He told me once years ago, you know, these the people that you don't trust, who don't respect you or that you you don't like how they do things, just stop working with them. And i was kind of like, "Oh, yeah, but you know, this and this and this." And he's like, "No, but but just stop." And he's like, "You know, and you don't have to write a long dramatic email and tell tell someone all the reasons why you're not dealing with them anymore. He's like, just kind of quietly step away and then take the energy and time that you're focusing on those relationships and put it into developing new relationships and, you know, put more energy and time into the people that you like working with, get rid of the people that you don't like working with, you know, quietly stepping away and fill that space with, new relationships and that was um i mean it's probably around 2010 or 2011 when he gave me that advice but it has stuck with me ever since and i've I've shared it with other people and i i credit him with it because that was a a huge game changer as much as i hate that cliche of a phrase (laughs) (laughs) big yeah it it was a big fork in the road for my my personal and professional life
0: that's that's really cool that's really cool um, you know, so kind of kind of pulling the uh, pulling the vision back to you know your upbringing in uh, you know the Midwest in Indianapolis because I think you know most people that get into you know punk and hardcore have the you know the, the coastal experience whereas you know you were operating from a standpoint of yeah being close to a, you know a large city but not in the same way that los angeles or new york or even orange county is um so you know walk me through kind of you know your upbringing your um you know your family structure uh what your house kind of looked like as you were growing up
1: yeah you know it's interesting as i just talked quite a bit about this with Dwid from integrity who grew up also in the midwest and he and i you know i'm a few years younger than him but we're roughly the same age and had very similar backgrounds and um he lived in indiana for a big portion of his childhood as did i um yeah i was uh, born and raised in indianapolis there was a brief period of about two years uh, from age two to four uh most of which i don't have much recollection of where my family lived in California, in uh, San Mateo, in Northern California. Um, And we ended up back in Indiana. Um, Yeah, my parents divorced when I was four years old. I didn't really see my dad again until I was about 11. And around the time that he showed back up in my life, uh, my mom passed away. So, you know, I have uh, a lot of the classic sort of abandonment issues and and all those sort of things that you don't realize until you're an adult are shaping and coloring a lot of things about your life um but you know with that being said my mom was great um and I think a lot of the creativity and interest in the arts and music and that sort of thing definitely stems from her and my dad on the flip side when he did show back up in my life, he was full on. Like he was, he was back. He kind of, you know, he, uh, he had struggled with, um, alcohol and, and other compulsive behaviors and through a 12 step program that he got into in the mid eighties and has has stuck with, um, you know, really turned his life around. And I'm a, I'm a big believer in that stuff. Um, and it's, uh, Power to create positive change. I've seen it. I've seen it work in a lot of people's lives, and um, my dad's a great example of, of that. Um, but yeah, we were uh, blue collar, working class. Um, my mom, you know, raising my brother and I as a single mom in the South Side of Indianapolis uh, for most of my childhood, uh, worked on a secretary's salary. Um, she. Uh, was diagnosed with lupus which continues to be a confounding mystery to the medical community but especially in the late 70s and early 80s i mean they really didn't know anything about it um so you know she was dealing with that and raising two kids and you know she slept on the couch in the living room in a pull-out bed so my brother and i could each have our own bedroom when we were kids uh so you know that was a big part of of that experience. Um, you know, my dad worked, uh, in the newspaper business, um, in the mailroom and in the, uh, you know, in the machine sort of area, fixing machines and things like that. So, you know, when I hear those corny, uh, working class, uh, skinhead songs, (laughs) I can, Mm -hmm. I can relate to them, you know, uh, just as much as I can relate to uh, certain types of hip hop and like street punk and hardcore and stuff like that, because I definitely have that um, you know, that Irish Catholic working class uh, experience as a kid. And also, you know, the uh, kind of redneck white trash area of town, (laughs) that you know, that uh, I can relate to as a metalhead and, and various other things. So I think that I was aware of class issues and race issues and, and social justice as it's called either disparagingly or, or empoweringly these days. Um, I was kind of in tune with that stuff pretty early on. I was also in tune with, you know, religion and kind of life's big questions, which I think, you know, when you lose a parent at an early age, that sort of opens the door to wondering about that sort of stuff and, and being fascinated slash, angered slash repulsed slash uh, you know enamored with it um so yeah all of those things really were a perfect storm for me to be really into comic books and horror movies and action movies and uh, darker music heavier music and you know yeah discovering uh, punk and post-punk and that leading directly into thrash metal and thrash metal leading directly into hardcore and metal core as it was kind of developing as a sound and scene. And,
0: right. Right. Yeah. And, so. and you had, uh, brothers and sisters or no, uh, one older brother. Okay. Um, and
1: I also have a older, much older half half brother and half sister from my dad's first marriage. Uh, my dad actually, uh, was a father at like 17 or 18 and was married with two kids by his late teens and early 20s. And that marriage dissolved. And then he met my mom, uh, you know, in his 30s and married her and had uh, my older brother and myself. So I have a, a half brother and a half sister um, who I didn't grow up with, but as an adult, you know, have, have been in contact with and uh, and gotten to spend some time with and get a little closer to. Um so yeah so it's always an interesting uh, you know the short the short answer is always yeah i have an older brother but if i'm having a longer conversation like this one then i say i actually also have a half brother and a half sister.
0: Right. Yeah there 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 are other people that were present <laughs> present in the yeah. house in and around things. I'm excited to tell you about a great sponsor that is called Hello Fresh and They are a meal delivery kit service that shops, plans, and delivers your favorite step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. With HelloFresh, all the ingredients are delivered right to your door in recyclable, insulated packaging and come pre-measured in handy labeled meal kits so you know which ingredients go with which recipe, which is unbelievable because otherwise it's just this confusing mess and you're just like, I don't know what goes with what. And HelloFresh offers a wide variety of chef-curated recipes that change weekly, including the classic plan, a veggie plan, and the family plan, which is quick and easy meals that the whole family will love. And better yet, you can choose a delivery day that works best for your busy schedule, and even pause your account for weeks at a time. HelloFresh makes it so easy to cook delicious, balanced dinners for less than $10 a meal. There's no more time-consuming meal planning or grocery shopping. Enjoy not spending money on takeout for an easy night. Or... Worrying about gathering ingredients week after week after week. I've been on the HelloFresh train for quite some time and I love this service. It's so rad because, like I said before, it just comes in a super easy box. You pop it open, you toss it in the refrigerator a couple nights a week. My wife and I cook it up and it's not only is it fun, it's bonding time, but then it the The meals are so good, and you know I'm vegan, and so what I do is I, you know, and they do a vegetarian box, and I'm just able to replace some ingredients, and it works perfectly. But trust me, this is the real deal. It will make your life so much better and easier, and make you feel like you're an absolute killer in the kitchen. So, for thirty dollars off your first week of HelloFresh, visit hellofresh.com and enter the promo code Words Thirty. That's the number three zero. And I. I can't endorse this enough. Trust me. Try it out. You'll love it. HelloFresh.com. Use the promo code Words W-O-R-D-S thirty. Alright? So enjoy some food on me. All right? Now on to the show. Like you said, as you started to, you know, dive into all these different subcultures and get um, you know, really deep on them because you know, there's there's certain people where um, you know, that are peers of ours where you can see how uh, you know, kind of where their deep dive ends, whether it's like you know, they don't feel comfortable with a certain subject matter, whether it's just because, like, oh, yeah, like, you know, I'm not Christian, so I won't get into Christian hardcore, or whatever. That's just a random example. But, like, you know, you really, you know, put yourself into a lot of it. Um, it like, I, I'm going to presume that, you know, many people, like, as you were going into high school and stuff like that, were just like, yeah, like, Ryan's a cool dude, but like, man, he's into some weird stuff. Like, how how did people interact with you as you were you're kind of bringing this stuff uh you know into their worlds willingly and maybe sometimes unwillingly
1: oh I mean there's definitely yeah a lot of different kind of mile markers in terms of uh you know it, it it's such a cliche these days and this might be because you know I wrote a dozen cover stories on kind of modern warped tour era bands in a period of a few years that maybe it feels like a cliche to me but I, you know, I actually was bullied as a kid, <laughs> you know almost—you right. know what I mean? Like it sort of feels like that's just, that's something, you know, I get into these conversations with some of these, uh, uh, you know, band guys. And it's like, it, it comes up so often and maybe that's just emblematic of, uh, how prevalent this has been. and and what a shame that is, but you know, I had, I definitely had different bullies, um, in elementary school and in middle school where i was you know chased home from the bus stop and uh you know i mean literally those 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 classic bully stories of being like shoved into your locker and that sort of thing like that stuff that stuff definitely happened to me and a lot of it was um not really relating to you know i was never into sports um a lot of the things that kids were into in the late seventies and, and early eighties and late eighties in Indiana were not things that I was into or related to. And, you know, I remember being picked on literally for wearing Vans, you know, cause those were like weird shoes <laughs> to be wearing in sixth grade, you know, in the eighties in Indianapolis. Um, and I'm not trying to say that I was hip and cool and understood hip and cool things that other kids didn't, but there was definitely an element of that, you know, I mean, uh, being into comic books, being into dungeons and dragons or role playing games, being even into like Nintendo and video games and stuff like that. At a certain point, now that stuff was cool. Like it was all things that weird kids did and were into. Um, with that being said, I, I was able to forge some really solid friendships, uh, throughout elementary, middle and high school with a core group of people who were also into weird things. Um, a handful of whom I'm still close with to this day and and still communicate with, you know, even on a daily basis. Um, But, you know, that tended to be few and far between, and it was always a very small group within whatever school that I went to. And one of the beauties of the hardcore scene uh, getting into high school was it enabled me to meet like-minded people and other parts of Indianapolis, uh, who I didn't go to school with, you know, who lived on different sides of town. And then in high school, even through, uh, like maximum rock and roll fanzine and, you know, literally snail mail and that sort of thing, getting to know people in Louisville and Chicago and St. Louis and Detroit and Cleveland in these cities that were, you know, anywhere from a 90 minute to a five hour drive away. Um, and forging, really important friendships and also friendships that persist to this day. You know, it's, uh, we're all in such constant communication and contact with one another these days. And, you know, where we can get on social media and talk to people in other parts of the world. But when I was growing up, um, that was pretty profound and different to, you know, have close friends that live six hours away where it costs, you know, a dollar a minute to talk to them (laughs) on the phone. Um, you know, it was pretty novel and I think it definitely helped, uh, expand my horizons and, uh, feel connected with like-minded people who were interested in the same things I was or felt the same way I did about things, uh, that weren't accessible to me locally. So, you know, I was, uh, pretty shy and introverted. um, and when i when i would connect with somebody you know in those relationships i could be really talkative and sometimes even uh you know bossy uh like certainly when it came to forming bands i was always the the band the band boss you know the band dictator that was band dad yeah yeah (laughs) dragging everybody around and yeah making them look and sound and do the things that i wanted to do um so i definitely had that part going but in the larger kind of culture around me. I was, was very quiet and withdrawn and, um, didn't want much to do with people or really know how to interact with them. And yeah, as that kind of went forward, um, in our local scene, I could definitely be a a polarizing figure. You know, I was into things like veganism and straight edge, uh, that weren't popular. (laughs) Um, you know, my, my, my first, One of my first bands was actually the first straight edge band in Indianapolis ever, which was pretty late for the hardcore scene, given that this was like 1989. Um, You know, there had been straight edge kids before me, but there had never actually been, you know, a singer, a guitar player, a bass player and a drummer that were able to come together and form an actual band. So my my you know, one of my first bands are. We only played one show. We were the actual first straight edge band in Indianapolis. We had that 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 going for us, yeah. which um, was not a popular thing. That was not a way to make fans. It was definitely a way to be an outcast amongst the outcasts, um, which we didn't quite understand when we first got into it because our idea about straight edge and straight edge hardcore bands was that it was really positive and it was about unity and it was all, you know, um, yay, raw, let's all be good people and do good things. And we got so much shit and we were picked on so mercilessly by the rest of the scene, just for being straight edge kids that that developed into us adopting this kind of militant attitude. And and we were also, you know, we were listening to things like boogie down productions and public enemy and um, kind of militant hip hop stuff. And we kind of adopted that, attitude and then we realized that there were bands like die hard and confront and vegan reich and raid who were um who who didn't take shit for standing up for uh you know the drug-free lifestyle or animal rights or things like that and once we realized that that was even possible i mean once we heard the judge seven inch even um you know our band we we changed our name we changed our attitude we changed our style and and a group of friends kind of cropped up where um we fought back frankly and it was always it was always from a point of of defense you know and we had and this was indianapolis in the late 80s and early 90s so we still had um skinheads of all shapes uh whether it was skinheads who were people of color or skinheads who were quote-unquote neutral or nazi skinheads and that meant that there were fights at shows there were was kind of a violent resistance uh, and uh, move to get those people out of our scene which eventually worked Um, but yeah we started off with the best of intentions of like yay raw isn't this (sighs) nice we're in all this like we love animals and like we don't want to like party and get wasted every weekend and be these like lame jocks we want to be like friendly and fun and self-empowered and um other punks and hardcore kids really hated us for that yeah. <laughs> and, and we were and we were baffled you know they were writing songs about us and stuff like that and then uh yeah that 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 um caused us to adopt a more militant attitude and then of course it became that much easier to hate us because then it was like look how militant those guys are
0: yeah look how extreme they are yeah exactly <laughs> but i have to say whenever you hear
1: i mean how many times do you hear someone say like i mean you know i don't have a problem with straight edge it's just the straight edgeers who like knock a beer out of your hand and like beat you up for smoking and blah, blah, blah. Did that ever actually happen anywhere ever? Yeah. Like, I feel like that's like some weird urban legend because I certainly never did that. I never knew anyone who did that. I never knew of any actual verified accounts of that happening and the sort of violence quote unquote that you did hear about, um, was really more like in the late 90s and it tended to be like straight edge on straight edge violence you know like different crews squabbling or you know I mean as far as like random people getting hurt in the pit that definitely wasn't exclusive to straight edge Um, you know I I don't know I feel like I felt like I, I feel like it was more straight edge people who were in straight edge crews who quit being straight edge that got beaten up but this idea of like yeah, you go to parties and somebody's smoking and you knock the cigarette out of their hand. Yeah, pop- total- I-
0: yeah, that's totally yeah, that's that that is totally like a work of fiction. I mean, I'm sure it- Yeah, that's fantasy, right? Yeah, like yeah. I just I mean, I'm sure. Yet it- to hear any like provable claims yeah. of that. It's like anecd- anecdotal stories, but then it's like, yeah, I don't actually believe that that happened, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, fights
1: fights in my experience were I mean, it sounds again corny to say like a cliche or something, but it was always self-defense. It was always people were like weirdly threatened by (laughs) straight edge or vegan kids for, you know, like, and and then in terms of violence and like with the hardline thing or the vegan straight edge thing, a lot of that violence was property destruction. It was, you know, direct action and which is a whole other debate and conversation, but that's, um, you know, that's a form of activism that isn't by any means exclusive to, animal liberation movement
0: yeah oh absolutely and uh kind of along that same tip because um you know like you mentioned and you know you you have shown a um you know not an interest but a passion for this you know throughout your life is you know your relationship to god and spirituality and everything like that um and i presume you know, in many respects, uh, you know, people have probably uh, just because, you know, clearly spirituality within the context of, you know, punk and hardcore is usually not embraced widely unless you're like, oh yeah, well you're a band on solitaire here, tooth and nail. Like <laughs> other than that, there's not really, yeah. there's not, there's not like, or face down, you know, those are, those are the two safe spaces from that perspective. But, uh, I mean I, you know I, I guess I were you raised in a religious household and I guess I, I know it's a, a big question to kind of unravel but um you know just because uh that's something that has been pervasive throughout your whole life um so yeah where does Yeah that,
1: no I'm down to I'm down to dig into it for sure um I, I will say broadly speaking in 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 terms of how it relates to the hardcore experience um you know the glass half full is that and this is really where I'm at these days in terms of my focus. The glass half full is that I've interacted with so many different people with so much diverse thought and experiences. that's really helped inform who I am and, and really enriches my my daily life. And you know my uh, you know my best friend in the world, for example, is an atheist who's straight edge, um, isn't vegan. You know, one of my other close friends is a Christian who leans, uh, conservative and isn't straight edge. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I, I've, I've, uh, been really blessed and I'm really thankful that, um, I just, I've just known so many different types of people for such a long time, you know, who have, uh, differing worldviews and lifestyles and yet I can connect with them in areas where we have commonalities and I can also connect in areas where we have complementary differences. So that's the glass half full version. Got it. The glass half empty version, and this was certainly uh, plagued me throughout my 20s, I was never straight-edge enough for most straight-edge people and I was too straight-edge for people that were into partying and, you know, I was, uh, I was too religious for most punk and hardcore people and not this or that enough for Christian hardcore kids or people that I knew who converted to Islam or whatever. You know, it was like the the glass half empty was, I definitely struggled with, um, no one's ever stoked. Like I was, you know, I always felt like I was, uh, pulled, pulled between different worlds and that, uh, there was an elitism or a way of not measuring up that was, persistent with with those crowds so luckily that's a lot of that feels like a lifetime ago and the people who were the most militant or critical from any perspective ultimately bent or broke somehow you know whether it was like a super hardcore militant straight edge person who ended up selling out quote unquote or an ultra conservative christian who's uh you know become Uh, accepting of homosexuals or you know whatever it is um those those people whose lives were like these rubber bands that were pulled so tight they either flung in the other direction or they broke or they or they relaxed you know became like a nice relaxed rubber band right (laughs) um so that's you know that's always been fascinating to me um and kind of that idea of the outcast among the outcasts um you know i would uh in the in the late 90s even i was in a band that yeah talked tackled different spiritual ideas and so on and had a lot of diversity of thought and opinion even within the lineup uh, and for some people just the simple fact that we would play with christian hardcore bands um, made us unsavory you know people people were uncomfortable about the fact that we played with Christian hardcore bands. And then we'd play with these Christian hardcore bands who were uncomfortable with the fact that we weren't Christians.
0: Right. Totally. <laughs> you know? Like, let me, let me examine your lyric book, dude.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, yeah. Uh, so why wow, you guys curse on stage? What? <laughs> um, so yeah, so it was always this sort of being pulled apart in different directions, but to get back to your specific question, you know, my, uh, my dad comes from an Irish Catholic family, He's referred to himself as a recovering Catholic at various points. You know, he wasn't uh, a practicing Catholic in my experience. And I didn't really grow up with him until I was, you know, about 11 or 12. And then had the single father experience with him. And, you know, we would go to mass and things like that for funerals and that sort of thing. But um, even holidays, we weren't necessarily observing religiously. And then my mom uh, was pretty active in the Presbyterian Church. She was what you would call a born-again Christian um, in her I guess, I guess in like the late seventies, early eighties, she died pretty young. Um, but that became a, a, important thing for her, uh, towards the end of her life. And, um, so I had, you know, some experience going to Presbyterian church and Sunday school and that sort of thing. And then I was also aware of Catholicism from that side of my family. And as a teenager, and I think like a lot of kids who were into punk and hardcore, I I questioned everything and I, and I had a a healthy skepticism and a cynicism about every aspect of theology and every part of religion. But I think where I also differed from a lot of my peers and when I say peers, I mean, obviously within subculture because I differed on everything with (laughs) the dominant popular culture. Um, I think where I differed was that I was not just questioning, but I was also a seeker and I identified, even more so with those types of artists and those types of people, whether it was the bad brains, the chromags, um, you know, artists and musicians and that, that sort of veered off into this third path, you know, cause it was either like, Oh, just be like a conservative christian young republican or be a total no gods no masters like militant atheist um that wants to burn all religion it, it, i'm like no what, what, isn't there an option c <laughs> you know do we have what do we have their man the baby out with the bathwater? yeah um is it possible not to be racist or homophobic or misogynist um and also believe in god you know is it possible to get something out of the Bible or the story of Jesus without being a fundamentalist. And, you know, I, I, man, I, through my late teens and and early twenties, I studied everything from, you know, I was never a Krishna devotee, but I, I studied Krishna consciousness and was around devotees and uh, spent time in temples. Uh, actually, a friend of mine and I went on tour with the band One Hundred and Eight for a couple of weeks, and you know, stayed at Iskon temples and so on. Uh, vigorously debated different Krishna devotees. Um, I studied and was fascinated by the Move organization in Philadelphia, um, the Nation of Islam, uh, a lot of the islamic ideas that were coming through in hip-hop at that time Um, i had a lot of friends who uh, converted to islam at different points in the late 90s especially spent time in mosques prayed in mosques um spent a lot of time around bands like living sacrifice and the guys in zeo and and different people in that christian metal world that had a more nuanced take or a different take you know i always found uh, especially like Dan from Zao to be a much more relatable person in terms of his faith experience and his walk and that sort of thing, um, and he was somebody that was you know too Christian for some people and not Christian enough for the Christian scene, um, you know. So I, I definitely gravitated more towards those kind of personalities. Uh, the Bahai faith that was something that I wasn't even involved in at one point, and all of it sort of led me around to. Uh, honestly, it was after I I moved to California, which was about 16 years ago, that I started to even identify as a Christian and sort of found that that was the framework in which I felt the most comfortable exploring these ideas. Um, And some of that's culture, you know, some of that's the Irish Catholic thing. Um, Some of that's the people I was around and how the real sort of electric faith that I felt around them. Um, You know, I appreciated in the Christian tradition, and this is, I think, a surprise to some people on the outside of it or who grew up with a certain view of it, there's actually, there's a real lack of orthodoxy. You know, there's certain things that Christians all share in common in terms of belief, but then there's wildly divergent practices and theological systems and sects and, you know— I used to as a kid look at christianity and go oh there's so many different denominations and versions of it so it can't be true because it's such a mess and they don't even agree about anything and now i feel the same way except i go wow it's got to be true there's so much beauty and mystery and magic here and so many different ways of looking at it and points of view and oh it's awesome how complicated it is um you know it's uh two sides of the same coin uh whereas you know things like the the high faith and, and other religions that I had studied or was around or involved in, there's a real orthodoxy and a real uniformity of thought that's enforced by a hierarchy or a, um, a system of governance. And that's something as a contrarian, as a rabble rouser, as a libertarian an anarchist, whatever, whatever paintbrush you want to use um, that I've always identified with. And that's when I found this idea of a personal relationship uh, with Christ and the idea of liberation theology and different things that I encountered, that's where I found a home uh, in the Christian umbrella uh, as an adult and and where, where I'm still at now. Um, albeit, uh, there's a lot of isms and a lot of nuances we can get into, uh, and it's such a charged word, right? You tell somebody you're a Christian and they, it
0: brings a lot to the table. Yeah, of course.
1: Yeah, it brings a lot, it brings a lot of. Uh, it, it, it triggers people
0: <laughs> <That's true. laughs> you know yeah, yeah
1: you know and uh, and i understand why um and a lot of christians over the years if they hear me say well i'm a christian but you know um i don't believe homosexuality is a sin and the, 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 you know i start listing off these things they think oh well you're not really a christian or they think oh well you're a you're a people pleaser and it's like uh, i'll be the first one to tell you my life experience over and over and over there's nothing people pleasing about these positions. Uh, You know what I mean? Like you end up not Christian enough for some Christians and too Christian for your atheist friends. Like there's nothing people pleasing about it. Um, It, it, to me, it's just an unending search for truth and meaning and purpose and to uh, decide what that is for myself and to stand up for it, whether or not it pleases uh, different groups of people. Because yeah. mo- most cases, it doesn't. It's always going to offend somebody. Um, and that's just so part of the experience. It's part of the journey. That's my inner punk rock kid, I guess, that's never going to
0: yeah. go. Yeah, no, absolutely. Hey, we have a new partner on this show, and I cannot be more excited about it because I've used this service for a long time. Texture. So have you ever walked by a newsstand and seen a stunning magazine cover that makes you want to stop and be like, hey, what's, what's up with that? Or read a cover headline that makes you want to know more? The next time you do, remember Texture. So with the Texture app, not only do you get a peek inside the whole magazine, but you get the whole magazine. Plus unlimited access to over 200 additional premium titles like Time, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, Wired. And right now, you can try Texture for free. Just imagine having all of your favorite magazines and the back issues anytime, anywhere. To start this free Texture trial, go to texture.com slash words, and then if you choose to continue, listeners of this very show will get Texture for just nine ninety nine a month. That's 30% off the listed price. There's also great gift options for those readers in your life that you want to hook up. So please go to texture.com slash words to start your free trial today. No joke, this is unbelievable. Like I used to subscribe to 10, 15 magazines and then there's nothing more frustrating than those things piling up on the side of your bed and then you are just like, oh man, this is amazing. You can dive in and out, read whatever you want. I sometimes look at magazines that I would never look at before because I'm like, I'm not gonna get a subscription or I'm not gonna pay like $7 for a magazine in a bookstore. Texture brings it all to your fingertips. It is so awesome. So please go to texture.com. Slash words, and you will enjoy what texture has to offer. Okay. Get smart. Use texture. Now on with the show. You're kind of focusing on, you know, burn it down, where, um, you know, you, you, that band existed in the, you know, era before bands, with the exception of, you know, whatever your earth crisis is or your hate breeds who, you know, started to make a name and become successful, whatever that may mean where it's like they could just you know go on tour and sustain themselves and like you know maybe work a you know at a bagel shop in between tours or something like that but like you know burn it down was it was like just right on the cusp of you know being able to uh you know take it more seriously from a business standpoint um did it uh you, like did it feel that way as you were kind of you know getting on larger tours and you know i mean because I, I remember seeing you guys you toured with In flames before correct i think i saw you. uh yeah uh twice actually okay yeah i think i saw you at the glass house um uh,
1: we didn't we didn't actually make it out to california on either of those tours but we uh we were supposed to um <laughs> got it. But yeah we toured with uh in flames and dillinger's escape plan uh we did shows with hate breed um Shadows Fall, a bunch of bands that were either in the process of kind of getting to that that stage that you're describing uh, or were already there. And to be honest with you, it, it, it changed day by day whether we felt like it was getting to that stage or not. Um, and certainly, yeah, I think you rightly identified we were right on the cusp because, I mean, our band broke up in 2000, played a final show in 2001, and this was, you know, bands like kill switch and stuff like that were just sort of starting. Um, but the idea that, uh, you know, a band like a or kill switch or any of these bands that they would have gold records, you know, um, that was definitely far from our imaginations and, and didn't seem like anything real or attainable. And we were also on that cusp where, you know, um, people gave me crap because i didn't wear like baggy pants (laughs) you know or because like uh you know we had we had singing parts singing parts was like super controversial quote-unquote clean vocals you know it was like we're right on the edge of like you know after the band was gone um and meeting people like howard jones or um you know brandon chapetti or james hart and like you know, people like that that either met towards the end of the band or immediately afterwards, they would say that they really, you know, really appreciated it and were really into what we were doing. But that was a lot of after the fact. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was yeah. it was definitely a struggle while it was happening. You know, and we had we shared a lot in common with some other bands from the Midwest of the era. Um, you know, Coalesce. Um, we did shows with uh, you know bands that were coming from a similar perspective in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, it didn't, it didn't feel like something that was becoming this big scene that of course metalcore and the new wave of American heavy metal went on to be. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting moment in time to be a kind of the tail end of, of yeah, that era of, um, earth crisis and that sort of thing and right in the very
0: beginning of what became like that big uh, metalcore
1: explosion of like you know 2003 and onward
0: right exactly and you know that leads into my next question where you know you as you you know moved out to california and then obviously like you said as the you know the band uh wrapped itself up in the early 2000s um and you then you started to you know manage a lot of these bands that were you know at the epicenter of that um specifically because you were, you know, located in Southern California, you already had all these, um, relationships with people. Um, you know, I'm going to guess that stepping into management was, was pretty easy, but the, the thing that I kind of wanted to focus on, and when I say easy, I mean, not like you were immediately good at it, but easy where, you know, you had these relationships (laughs) just to be clear. Yeah. But the question I wanted to ask was, it's like, you know, because you were friends with all these people and that is where your relationship with them began. And then, you know, Sometimes, when you muddy the waters of dealing with friends and <laughs> business uh, and then especially at the level that you were dealing with all of these bands you know you know uh, where there was so much interest in what they were doing um, you know was that was that a difficult road for you to navigate as far as the you know where where does our friendship end and our business relationship begin and that sort of stuff
1: uh yes and no, because I think the biggest blessing and a curse about. My management career, and, and you're completely correct about the way that it started, was that it was very organic, and these were all fr- these were all friends. You know, every band that I managed um, it developed out of a natural friendship that predated even my career as a manager. And the reason why I say it was a blessing and a curse is that as the years went on, in terms of longevity in that management world, and as more and more management companies cropped up and that sort of thing. Um, The fact that my relationships were so friend-driven from a purely business, professional, financial standpoint ultimately hurt me in that world because people came along who didn't operate that way at all. And I was never a salesman you know, I, I could never sit down with a new upcoming band and blow a bunch of smoke at them about how huge and successful they were going to be. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, I, I could never, uh, I wasn't a bullshitter, you know, and a lot of bullshitters came along who were able to grab a lot of bands or, you know, poach established bands from other managers. And I just never, I was just never that sort of shark. I was never wired that way. And I, I wasn't a, a wine and diner razzle dazzle i was very nuts and bolts you know making the organized checklist and and crossing everything off and really doing well by my friends you know and with certain scenes there's always kind of an expiration date and there's you know band members get older they get married they start families they want to put down roots um you know seeing kids quote unquote they get older um you know, 15 year olds want to see a 21 year old singer on stage. And eventually those 15 year olds become the 21 year old singer and the 21 year old singer from yesteryear is now, you know, pushing 30. And it just sort of, uh, with some very few exceptions, there's a natural kind of life cycle or life expect expectancy to these bands. And when you're intermingling that with, with business and trying to make it someone's career, for record labels for booking agents for attorneys for managers for band members for crew members um it's pretty precarious you know and and i wasn't because i wasn't out there constantly trying to have the new hot thing and and because i never uh was interested in poaching a band from somebody else When a couple of the artists that I was working with for a number of years reached that inevitable stage where they had plateaued and they were not as popular as they were, not as hot as they were, weren't getting the same offers that they used to, um, there was a a moment where I had to go, okay, I need to do this a different – I'm going to keep doing this a different way than everybody else, and I'm going to stick with this idea of – Staying diverse in my own professional career and all the things I'm going to do, I just you know there was there was a time in the metal core scene that having a your baseball card collection of look at our website with all these bands and all these managers under our umbrella and all these people that were like management companies started thinking they were the band. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. I always saw a manager as someone more behind the scenes, you know? Like I never there was never a superhero tour, you know, or and this isn't to to disparage, you know, people that I'm friendly with who who tried some of these different things that that worked for them to varying degrees of success or or failure. Um but yeah, I wasn't trying to have a a multifaceted empire, you know. I never started a publishing company. I wasn't uh you know, I was briefly involved with a, a label imprint, which was a friend of mine really wanted to do. And I, I did with him. And, but I, you know, I wasn't trying to have the empire, you know, um, everyone. I mean, you know, that's not to say that I, I don't enjoy success and I don't want to, uh, you know, benefit from hard work and all that sort of thing. I, you know what I'm talking about? Like, I'm just there's just a different.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mentality, well, I, you know? For sure. I mean, especially when you come at it from the standpoint that, you know, you are. You're you're not trying to build an empire. Uh, you are simply trying to help people out. And then you know if the empire does become built through work then so be it but it's not this grand vision like you said of the you know i'm going to collect 15 bands and then put this together and do that it's you know management is you know at least in my view is very much the same way as when people put together bands you know where you're just like you know dicking around with friends and same sort of idea where you're just like hey like i know a little bit about this i can totally help you and be the you know fourth or fifth or sixth member of said band just to kind of throw around ideas because you know when you're in your own bubble, sometimes it's hard to have an outsider's perspective and that's what it is. So yeah, I totally get what you're saying.
1: Yeah. And I wasn't willing to make it about me, you know, like I didn't want to be the guy. And then I have these bands, you know, I wanted the bands to be the bands and I wanted to support them and represent them in that capacity as a manager. But there was a culture that developed, um, where people start acting like it's about them, and it's just something i I wasn't comfortable with uh you know, and when i when I started managing these bands, the idea of managers in that scene was new or weird there weren't there weren't many,
0: you know and and the, um and to your point too, not to interrupt your train of thought, but like there was a there's an act of distrust to that because you know, since, yes. since much of that was still in its infancy, as far as bands being, you know, professional entities, there was that notion that the managers would step in and become this, you know, puppet master behind the scenes and you know telling bands. Of course, to, yeah, of to, course. To, to, A lot telling of bands things. to look pretty or whatever, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, write this kind of song or whatever. And yeah, man, exactly. And another thing that changed is that bands will form now and have a merch company and a manager and a social media person and all this stuff overnight you know before they've even written an album you know whereas the bands that i started working with were already a certain way into their career and had never had management you know i i started working with tiger army i worked for with tiger army for 10 years they were on their third record they'd never had a manager (laughs) you know um I, when I started working with Bleeding Through, they were about to tour with AFI, who were, uh, you know, had just had their platinum breakthrough album. So, you know, they had they had things going on. They had momentum. They had things that they had figured out for themselves, and hired management at a point where they needed help, where it be, where to become difficult to manage on their own. Um, and that's definitely changed, also. But yeah, I got to give credit to Brandon Chappety from Bleeding Through because he was the guy who who called me. Um, I was uh, a reporter, writer, and producer for MTV News at the time and, and doing some freelance stuff here and there. And Brandon called me one day and said, hey, my band is getting to a place where we think we need management. And we've met with some of these other managers. And exactly to your point, Ray, um, they weren't comfortable around these kind of sleazy <laughs> industry. They were distrustful of the whole concept, but they also recognized that You know somebody's got to be awake at a desk at nine a.m. to respond to the emails when they're on the road, you know, uh, or whatever it is. You know, just the the nuts and bolts and mechanics of the daily operations of a band when you start getting to a certain level. And he was the guy who called me and said, "Look, you—you're the only person we know who works in the quote-unquote like legitimate end of the entertainment industry um, as a journalist and, and whatnot. But you also come from where we came from." And you understand, you know, you've you've been in a band, you know what it's like to sleep on a floor to show up somewhere where there's no PA and they want you to sing through the bass amp. Uh, But you also might understand our record contract better than like my dad does, you know, (laughs) when he's because we don't know who else to have read it, you know. Um, And yeah, and I said, uh, well, I've never, you know, I haven't done this before. I don't know if I'll be any good at it. So I have a, a full time job and I'd feel weird charging you for it so let's just try it. And, um, you know, I managed their band for free for a few months. And then it was as simple as the guys from throwdown going, Hey, you manage bands now. Um, You manage bleeding through. Well, why don't you manage us? Right. And then literally the same conversation with Zao, where they were like, "Hey, we heard you're managing bleeding through and Throwdown. Like, why aren't you our manager?" And uh, (laughs) you know. And then uh, within a year after that, it was it was Demon Hunter, which were you know I knew Ryan Clark from the Focal Point days when we played shows together. Um, And then it was Tiger Army and you know the tiger army guys were people that i had met through afi who i'd going bring our conversation full circle to how things overlap you know i had interviewed afi for my fanzine um in the late 90s and that was just a relationship that continued from there i ended up doing uh, one of their cover stories for alternative press i did their first ever mtv news interview um you know and i met tiger army through afi and the AFI guys, uh, vouched for me to, uh, to represent tiger army. And that, that became a 10 year relationship. And, um, you know, demon hunter I've been working with since 2004 or 2005. I still represent throwdown, um, who aren't an active band like they were, but is still a band. We're actually negotiating a festival offer as we speak. Um, so, but yeah, I don't regret, um, doing it the friend way. Uh, and I don't regret sticking around as long as I did with each of those bands, but from a purely pragmatic business oriented only point of view, I wasn't sharky enough. I didn't go out there and and brand myself as like the dude to be your hot manager. I didn't poach bands from people. I didn't chase around the hot bands and try to impress them. And I stuck around with some bands, uh, when they were past their prime, you know, I have a very vivid memory around like 2009 of meeting with a band about potentially working with them. And they had said, uh, you know, they just met with other managers, younger, newer managers the day before. And they said, yeah, the guys we met with yesterday, they said to ask you about bleeding through and throwdown, And I'm like, cool. Yeah. Like, what do you want to know? You know, throw down, you know, tour with corn just came back from, australia with corn and did main support to kill switch and you know Ozfest and you know bleeding through oh we've been on the cover of revolver and outburn and metal edge and you know toured with slayer and manson you know what do you want to know you want to know about all that stuff and they were like oh no they said to ask you like what happened like like what went wrong like why are those bands kind of shot now they used to be so big (laughs) And and I have a vivid memory of that conversation because it was the first time that I had any sense of any of that, you know, and the competition and the, uh, and the, uh, you know, here today, gone tomorrow or the, what have, what have you done for me? Like I had, I had someone in the industry say to me once, um, somebody who, uh, bragged often about how many records he had, he had been a, a part of selling. And I had responded and said, you know what? I'd, only because I've heard you say this number so many times, a million records. I'd never added up the number for myself, but you know, I've been involved in like two and a half million sales. So, And his response was, this ain't the Sports Hall of Fame, bro. What have you done lately? <laughs> it's just funny in the grand scheme of life because I was maybe two years removed from those record sales at the time. You know, It's like, right. come on, man. Um, but yeah, that was, that was the ugly side of it that I just don't care to be involved in. You know, and uh and and sometimes through my friendships, I, uh, I've i ended up managing the unmanageable. You know, Dillinger Escape Plan is looked at as a difficult band to work with, and the only manager who did an entire album cycle with them, and it was, the, and it was their most successful album cycle. Adding yeah. myself on the back here, um yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> and they're still very good and close friends. You know, and that, and again, bringing us full circle. I had that relationship with Dillinger that no one else had because, uh, Burnetown toured with Dillinger, you know, and Ben and I had been friends for years and Greg's become one of my best friends. And, um, yeah, to answer your question about the, the friendships, um, they were never hurt by business. Thank God. They, they all sort of, I mean, they definitely were intermingled, but you know, I was, I was the best man in Dave Peter's wedding. He's still my best friend. Um, I was the best man in Chappetti's wedding for that matter. Uh, you know greg greg is still a very close friend ben liam all the dillinger guys you know we're we're homies uh jeff kresge from tiger army somebody i communicate with literally every day sometimes um you know he hasn't been in the band for three or four years i haven't worked with the band for three or four years um but yeah i'm uh, i'm very very happy and proud of those relationships and friendships and the things we were able to do together professionally and um you know, I, I ain't done either. It's 2017 and Demon Hunter had their biggest first week on album 8, their highest chart debut, their, their first number one single Christian radio. Um you know, we're still we're still doing the thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, no that's exciting. Um the uh the last thing I want to hit on was the um you know, because you have, you know, been writing and doing you know, your own form of journalism throughout, you know, many different entities, whether it's, you know, Alternative Press, or like you said, MTV News, that sort of stuff, um, you know, kind of focusing on your time at Alternative Press, um, you know, I know why, obviously, you, uh, you know, cover certain bands, whether it's, you know, Pierce the Veil, Memphis May Fire, all that stuff, um, you know, because clearly, that's the audience that uh, Alternative Press is going towards, um, you know, whereas I... Uh, because I know you, I know why it's easy for you to be able to communicate with uh, you know these people who uh you know you know play in bands and tour and have many of the same experiences that you know you and I have, but obviously are doing it at a much much larger level, um, whereas some people would just be like oh that that, that that band's posers or you know just that whole notion of like oh that band isn't valid because they you know they're not part of the hardcore scene or whatever you know those sort of elitist attitudes um you know have i guess have you I presume you haven't run into that uh, often from, um, you know, your interactions with these sort of bands. Um, but, you know, I, I'm sure maybe behind the scenes, certain people are just like, Ryan, why do you talk to those bands? Why do you cover those sort of bands? Or, oh, yeah.
1: No, okay. you're not wrong. You're, okay. get, you're, guess, you're guessing you're 100% correct, okay. you know, and I, I mean... You know, or I would post on Facebook like, check out this video interview, or check out this cover story, and and there's always the the old friends from back in the day that are like, what, what the, you know, <laughs> like, um, yeah, absolutely, and um, there's relationships in that world that I've had a lot of uh, difficulty with certain friends, uh because of them because they don't they don't understand how I could even sit in a room with this person or that person and I'll say a couple things about that um a co- yeah there's only a couple things I want to say one, one is that as a storyteller right and as a creative person and as somebody who is naturally curious I love so many of these individuals and their stories you know I, there's they're just interesting to, to pick apart and understand, um, you know, from their surface level charisma to the deepest, darkest reaches of their upbringing and their relationships and all that sort of thing, and how it relates to the art that they make. Um, that, so that's one end. And, that, and that's kind of a coverall that speaks to covering a lot of different bands. But I also want to say, um, plenty of these people whose music and and so on that I've covered in recent years, I really like as people. Um, you know, Andy Beersack from Blackville Brides is the first example that comes to mind. He's become a close friend, and and that's a relationship that was generated purely from covering his band. I mean, the first time we ever sat down together was me interviewing him you know but now he's somebody that i I communicate with all the time we have a ton of things in common i mean you know we're there's a there's a pretty big age difference between us but on the flip side we both have misfits tattoos um (laughs) you know he's grew up in ohio i grew up in indiana Mm -hmm. um and that's just the tip of the iceberg i mean we we have a ton in common we enjoy going to lunch together we enjoy uh talking about you know movies and Life and uh, you know relationships and all that sort of thing, and I've gotten to know his parents, you know, and, and through that relationship, and I don't have any embarrassment or regret about what what my cooler, elitist, older friends might think about Blackwell Brides. And if anything, I enjoy opening their minds to it, going like, "Hey, actually, you should check out this song." Or did you know Bob Rock produced one of their records? Or You know, uh, Rob Flynn from Machine Head is a good example of somebody who saw the, uh, the way Andy handled the hecklers and haters at the Revolver Golden Gods Awards a few years ago and was like, dude, this kid's fucking awesome. Like, this shit's punk rock, like, good for him, and then actually went and checked out their music as a result, you know, so there's guys like Andy, uh, who I, uh unashamedly advocate for with, with zero. It's not a guilty pleasure at all. I like, I like the music he makes and I more importantly, really love the dude. Um, and then there's, you know, you mentioned Pierce the veil. Not only do I love all of those guys, I'm 110% down with that band. Um, <laughs> their most recent record was my favorite record of that year. Uh, other than of course, Metallica, anytime they put out a record that doesn't have Lou Reed on it. Um, mm-hmm. Uh I you know, Pierce of Veil vale, Misadventures is a record that I absolutely love and adore. And certainly I wouldn't even be familiar with their music if I wasn't um engaged professionally in covering that scene. But I'm better for it and I'm happy that I uh was able to wrap my head around what they were doing and, and fall in love with it because I, I would I wouldn't have sought it out otherwise. You know, I mean the stuff I'm seeking out is more of that, you know, Decibel magazine top 40 albums of the year kind of stuff. I mean, my, you know, my personal passions fall in the realm these days of, you know, black gays and, uh, you know, neo-traditional doom metal and <laughs> that sort of thing, you know. Um, and yet, absolutely love that Pierce the Veil record. And they're unassailable when it comes to their level of musicianship and the the care and attention and focus they put into their artistry. And it's what great, sweet dudes they are. You know, so um
0: it's well I, I mean i like I like the point being that it's like I think a lot of people get stuck in the uh you know notion that you know whatever their you know their their salad days, so to speak are the only important thing, and then you know as you get older then of course it becomes more challenging to pay attention to new music, and so of course that stuff sucks or whatever, but you know there are well something can be completely not made for you it doesn't mean it doesn't illegitimize the fact that it's still art to a fourteen year old kid and it doesn't make that any less impactful, you know. And so yeah. I, I just I, I like the you know, the the approach that you take in these because it's like, you know, at the core of it, you're probably, you know, if you peel away enough layers or or even if you just go one layer deeper, then you're gonna be seeing that like, oh wow, this person has a very similar, you know, experience to me and they're like, you know, ten years younger than me or whatever. And it's like if you just turn that blind eye, you'll never even know.
1: Absolutely, man. Well, well said, well said. And it, and it's, yeah. And it's, uh, my life is that much more enriched by opening myself to up to relationships that, um, I wouldn't have otherwise. So, and I, you know, and I've carved out a career for myself doing things that I enjoy. I mean, no one's, no one's forcing me to go interview Blackfell Brides. I could certainly do something else. Um, You know, I'm choosing to take on some of these assignments and, and in some of these cases, like the examples we've discussed, uh, my life is better for it. And I have uh, new and awesome friends (laughs) and I've, I've had some more cynical people once in a while, and this has happened a couple of times, but some more cynical people say, well, of course you think that guy's cool because you're putting him on the cover of magazines and you're, you're, you know, interviewing him at the musician's Institute or whatever. Like that's why you have a good impression of this person. Cause you're getting, you know, they're, they're getting something out of you. And to those kind of friends of mine who have made those kind of comments, I just think, man, what a damning assessment of me. Like, are you like, so are you basically saying I'm a moron? Like I don't have any intuition or perception where I couldn't smell that. Like, I wouldn't be able to see through a fake friend who's, I mean, come on, man, <laughs> you know, and, um, I certainly can and have seen through those kind of people and, uh, all, you know, all the people we've just discussed, none of them fit the bill. They're all good dudes.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. That's, that's awesome. Well, Ryan, I, uh, I could obviously talk to you for another like three hours, but, um, you know, uh, I, th- I think, I think we might save the general public for that. We can just do it off air. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. <laughs> well, thanks for doing this, dude. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, no, thanks for having me. And um, happy to return the favor ASAP.
0: So that's that, right? Okay, Ryan, thank you very much for appearing on the show. And like I said, he has a bunch of podcasts on his own. Uh, no prize from God, where he talks about uh, spirituality, religion, um, mysticism, a bunch of stuff that is all kind of centered around. You know the belief in something larger than this world, and he also does a Metallica podcast, uh, which is is quite good. And then he also does a Pop Curse, which is a deep dive into pop culture. So uh, yeah, you should find that anywhere and everywhere, and follow him on social media, and uh, you'll be uh, you'll be entertained, and uh, yeah, all that stuff. So thank you very much. And uh, what do I got next week? I have Andrew Klein from Strife, who uh, yeah, Strife is just a, a absolutely monumentally important band in my life, and I know many other people's. Um, I had Chad, the bassist on quite some time ago and I was like, you know what? I need to talk to Andrew. It's uh, he's one of those people that is uh, a friend of mine now and a, and a peer in many ways. And so, uh, I was just like, hey, Andrew, let's do this. And he was like, all right, perfect. Um, because I, uh, uncharacteristically, uh, said that he was not straight edge anymore, which is, uh, is not true. He is. Um, this was like on an interview I did on another podcast. And so he jokingly emailed me being like, Hey man, uh, that's, uh, that's not true. And I was like, you know what? You're right. And I need to rectify that by having you on my show. <laughs> so that is that. Um, yeah. And you please have a good rest of the week and a safe weekend and whatever else you're doing. Hopefully it's safe. So until then be safe, everybody. And please, please, please visit my friends at movie.com slash words, and you'll be able to get a 30 day trial. Please. You'll love this service. The movies they have on there are spectacular. All right. Talk to you later. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.